Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on the podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, the topic today is caregiving and caregivers, and I'm just going to say this. If you're not moved by this dialogue, then I've not done a good job today of sharing this with you. This is an issue that is so much larger, so much more devastating, and so much more in need of reform than most of us are aware. For example, did you know that there are over 50 million caregivers, non-professional caregivers in the United States? Did you realize that nearly one out of every five Americans is a caregiver of a family member or a friend? It's an incredibly challenging situation for those folks. And I've been witness to this as a family member. Uh, I've encountered it over and over again as a practicing primary care physician. It, it's a problem that's getting worse as the American population is aging and as chronic disease becomes more prevalent. And I would say as some of the non-clinical determinants of health also worsen in our country, there's a longstanding literature on this topic, but I'm not sure that there's been a lot of action to remedy it. Our guest today, Laura Molden, is a scholar who has provided a framing of this that explains why this has been so largely ignored by the healthcare system. She brings some recommendations as well. I had the opportunity to listen to uh, Professor Laura Molden speak and was absolutely mesmerized by her eloquence, her honesty, her integrity, her scholarly brilliance, and quite honestly, her generosity and courage in being so open and sharing about an issue that is so very personal to her as well. I'm going to introduce Laura Molden in a moment. Before we jump in, I'd like to take a moment uh, for an announcement. I'd like to officially share with you the upcoming publication of my second book. It's called Beyond the Walls. It's about the megatrends, the humanistic movements, and the market disruptions that are transforming American healthcare. It's really an odyssey into the courageous entrepreneurs, the trailblazing leaders, and the organizations that are going beyond the walls of our legacy healthcare system to create a more personalized, effective, and humane system of care. The book is different from most others in the genre in that it's it's not about what's wrong in American healthcare. Instead, it's about what's right and what we should be doing more of. The official publication date is September 5th of 2023. I'm so excited to share the book with you. And I think it'll especially resonate with those of you who are listeners to this podcast. I also want to add that all the proceeds from the book are being donated to a nonprofit, Feeding America, which is dedicated to eliminating hunger in our country. I am so, so excited, though, to invite our guest today, Laura Molden. Laura is a writer, scholar based in Brooklyn, New York. She's currently an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. Her research focuses on disability care and technology. Her first book, Made to Hear, Cochlear Implants and, and Raising Deaf Children, documents the structure and culture of the systems we've designed to try to make deaf kids able to hear. Laura is actually currently writing a book, a second book on spousal caregiving, which weaves together research, her own memoir, and cultural commentary. I believe we're going to get a preview of that book today in our dialogue. L Laura, is it appropriate that I call you Professor Malton? Just welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for such a lovely introduction. And you can feel free to call me, Laura. Fine. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, I'm just going to say outright, I, I've seen you speak online and I am just such a fan of yours. I'm a little bit uh, starstruck with you. So you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to have to get over that so we can have a real dialogue. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. So let me start out. You know, I shared a stat or a couple of stats in the intro. Can you build on that, provide some more stats or facts on how big an issue and how serious an issue this is in our country? Yeah, I mean, I think the main stat that you cited that we have over 53 million family caregivers in the United States is, you know, the headline. And behind those numbers, however, that 53 number actually between 2015 and 2020, the increase was 10 million. So like five years before that, there were 10 million fewer caregivers. And within that 10-year period, it just shot up. 
excuse me, in that five-year period, it just shot up. And something that I think people don't understand is there's a parallel track here of increased technological capabilities and medical interventions that can extend our lives. So that track is happening. But what we don't see is that that's part of what's causing the increase in family caregivers, because as these folks get treatments that let them live longer, they're also living longer with more complex conditions, with more intensive care needs, so that we have that expansion happening. So I think the rise, the sharp uptick is something to watch out for. And the other thing to talk about that makes that uptick even sharper is the size of the baby boomer generation. So just the actual you know, numbers of baby boomers that we have who are now aging into disability and needing care, that's a whole nother thing to watch out for. So I think we can talk about the sort of, you know, broad strokes. And then, of course, within this category of family caregivers, you have subtypes, right? You have adult children caring for their aging parents or a sibling. You have spouses caring for their partner. So there's different subtypes that we could also get into. But yeah, I think those are some important tidbits about that big headline. Mm -hmm. That's really great. I had not even thought about the technology part contributing to this, but that is such a huge increase in such a short period of time. And I suspect it's going to continue. And I don't know if, if it's a linear increase or it's somewhat exponential or it's it's accelerating. But what I do know is that baby boomer demographic is going to be lasting for the next two, three decades. So this yes. is not a blip. This is going to be going on for decades and decades. Yes. And, you know, there's quite a few projections about this just skyrocketing. And then if you've heard the phrase silver tsunami, mm -hmm. that's something that people use to talk about that, which I did write a piece that sort of takes a bit of a problem with framing this as a disaster, as something that's somehow out of our control, that's just happening to us. And it's this terrible thing. And maybe we can talk more about that at some point. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to come back to that. Before we dive into some of the research from your perspective as an expert and a scholar, this is something personal for you. And, you know, I know you've shared that story and, and I suspect you're going to share it in your book, but would you be okay with sharing how your personal engagement in, in, in this issue of caregiving? Oh, absolutely. I think it's really important actually to be honest and transparent about some of my own motivations, but also one of my main goals in my work is to let people know that they're not alone. And part of the way that we do that is by sharing our own personal stories as a way for people to connect um, their experiences. So yeah, I became a caregiver to my partner in early 2006. She had Prior to our, you know, us entering into a relationship, she had had leukemia and been treated for that and was in remission and was seemingly okay. It wasn't until February of, of 2006, she said to me, I have been having pain in my leg and I had a biopsy and my leukemia had returned and so it had showed up in her bones. And at that point, I began my own, you know, people talk about it as a journey. I suppose we can we can talk about it like that, but my time period as a caregiver. And I was 27 years old and she was also 27. And both of her parents had already passed away. And so it really primarily fell to me although I had did have some help from some folks who cared about her very much. But it was largely our, you know, quite intimate journey in the situation of our relationship and within that really intimate context. And so that summer she had a bone marrow transplant and then she lived until December of 2010 with a number of chronic disabling conditions that worsened over time. And, you know, that's a whole long epic story in and of itself. So that's how that happened. What was that time period? How long was that? 
So that was from February of 2006 to December of 2010. So nearly five years. Wow. As someone who's had that experience from that perspective, what do so many people who haven't not understand about caregiving and caregivers? Is, is, are there a couple of major misunderstandings you see as you talk to others who have not been through that? Yeah, I think on one hand, there's the sort of purely emotional level that someone can't understand the terror that you live in on a day-to-day -day basis that the person that you love is going to die and and die imminently. And I think that kind of living in that kind of terror is something that is hard to wrap your head around if you haven't you know, had that experience. So there's this emotional level, but then there's also the, particularly for young caregivers. So I think younger caregivers are often more invisible than older caregivers because we have this idea of the sort of normative idea of the lifespan and that your younger years, you're ostensibly quote unquote healthy, and then you age. And it's true that those are the patterns, right? That we see the prevalence of disability go up over the life course. Like we know that, that, that those numbers bear that out. But what happens is that the folks who don't adhere to that sort of normative lifespan trajectory get kind of left out. And so I often think I thought of myself as on the other side of a two-way mirror, that I was back there watching everything happen to everybody around me, my peers, but I wasn't part of it. I was somehow cordoned off and stuck in this like terrible place behind a mirror that nobody could see through, and they couldn't see what was happening to me or to us. So I think isolation and invisibility are really big issues for any caregiver. And then I think sometimes for younger caregivers, that's even worse. And that's exacerbated because we don't tend to associate chronic illness or disability with younger folks, which of course, millions of young people have chronic conditions and disabilities, but we just often don't think of disability or associate disability with that time frame. You know, in my 20s, I was in New York City and I remember you know, being in my 20s and so much of my life at that point was obviously working, but also going out, hanging out with friends, evenings, weekends, dinners, restaurants, you know, going downtown, uptown, west side, <laughs> Central Park. And I'm thinking about you in your late 20s. It's a young age. It's a vibrant age. And how did that five years affect that whole? I mean, for me, that was such a huge part of my life and development and and at that point in time, just wondering about what was that like for you? Yeah, I really tried to keep some semblance of being able to go out with friends. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the bulk of my time was spent traveling all over the city, going to doctor's appointments with my partner. Mm -hmm. And most of my time was spent on the train on the bus or driving up the FDR to get to Memorial Sloan Kettering from Brooklyn. And it was a long commute. And most of my weeks involved this commute at least once. And the rest of the time, my partner was often homebound, not just purely because of physical impairments, but also because of her particular cancer and treatments, which meant that she basically had no immune system. So she was immunocompromised and neutropenic and, you know, we could not afford any kind of exposure. So we were often, you know, prevented from maybe being in crowds and things like that. But it also ebbed and flowed. You know, we might have a good month or two where we could go out to dinner with friends, but there was not any more or at least very, very rarely, the kind of social life that, you know, I had before that. So I did try to maintain, you know, friendships and had gatherings, but it was very different from before. If you don't mind my asking, how, how did it change or impact your relationship with your partner? Well, one of the things that I'm focused on in the book is that specific relationship, right? That there are these subtypes of family caregivers and we have our particular relationships with our parents. We have our particular relationship with our partner and that that context matters, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so for my partner and I, it very much became over time. And I wrote about this in an essay that I published in the Los Angeles Review of Books that I felt like I had been demoted over time from a partner or a lover to a life support system that I was no longer able to really feel like we were equal partners with each other anymore. And it felt more like it started to feel more like a nursing relationship. And this is often something that people don't want to talk about and don't want to admit because we're not really supposed to say that. And I think that that's something that was extraordinarily painful for me because I tried really hard to maintain those kinds of romantic aspects. And so did my partner. Like we both did that. And I call her Jay. I use her just her first initial throughout all my writing because she is gone. I'm the only one left to tell the story. And I I don't want to use her name in case she wouldn't have wanted that. So I just, I call her Jay as an initial in all of my writing, but Jay and I, you know, we tried really hard and she really did these sort of (laughs) big, you know, overt romantic gestures where she would send me to a restaurant. She made a a reservation for me and I would go and have this nice meal that she paid for, but I would have to go by myself, you know, because maybe she was unwell or unable to be in public at that time or couldn't move or couldn't walk. So it just depended on how she was doing. So she would sort of do these romantic gestures for me as a way to take care of me. So I don't want to suggest that we didn't take care of each other, but it was harder for us to maintain this idea of romance when we were, I think looking back now, I understand how traumatized we both were. I did not, I would not have used the word trauma at the time. I think it took me many years of reflection and therapy to understand that what I had experienced was a long-term traumatic event that unfolded every day over the period of years and that she did too. And so we were both kind of trying to fulfill these roles while also being a bit dissociated from them. And that was a major issue for me is that I tried to maintain this sort of emotional connection while at the same time, you know, to protect myself, my mind was also dissociating from that. And so there was this sort of parallel track that I was having to live in during that whole process. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, yeah, there were just, you know, as I'm listening to you, I was listening and just there were some of the words I would not have attached these words as you were just saying, you know, you talked about terror and isolation and and, and being demoted and and traumatized in this disassociation. I, again, it, it just paints a picture for me that quite honestly, I, I'd not appreciated before understood. I'd like to, if it's okay, I'd like to, in a moment, you made a transition from an individual who experienced this for quite some time to becoming a researcher or scientist who studied it. And I'd love to maybe transition to that, to how you did that, the way you conducted the research, um, maybe share a little bit with that. And if you can, one or two stories that, that you experienced, I just found listening to you talk about that just so amazing, the way you did the research and, and what you did and how you did it and what you learned. Yeah, I I think that during the time that I was a caregiver, I was a graduate student in sociology and my main subfield in sociology was medical sociology. So I studied a lot of doctor-patient interactions and how healthcare is structured in the U.S. and these sort of macro-level policies and then individual experiences of illness. And I also, you know, my other specialization is in disability studies, right, around experience of disability, community and culture that gets made out of this and the politics of ableism, which I'll just quickly define. Ableism is simply the devaluation of people who are disabled or people who aren't viewed as quote unquote productive for the economy. So and we can come back to that later. But yes, I was in the midst of thinking about all these things while this was unfolding. And I actually had decided 
because my partner went through a bone marrow transplant, I had decided I was going to write my dissertation on bone marrow transplants because it was just my way of coping. Intellectualizing what was going on around me was my way of coping with it. And my advisor, when Jay ended up worsening and you know, it was pretty clear that she was going to die. My advisor said, I don't think you should do this. <laughs> and so suggested that I shift my focus, which I did, which is how my first book came about. But all that to say that I was already thinking about these things from a sociological perspective, from a critical perspective, when it started happening to me. And that, in fact, I had to have people tell me, you got to pull back because it's it's too in the moment, right? And and I'm grateful for that. And I I did. I pulled back and I put all of that in a drawer and said, you know, one day I'll return to it. And as I got tenure, this was the thing that I knew, okay, this is my sort of quote unquote passion project once I sort of have the freedom to do work that I feel I can do in a way that feels safe and that prioritizes care for myself and prioritizes care for the people that I'm talking to. And so I ended up designing a project where I didn't feel like I could treat it as I had treated prior projects, which were more about and I've talked about this before, where social scientists, we tend to use these very neutral words around you know, research design and data collection and data management and data analysis. And I couldn't live with myself <laughs> approaching this in that way. And I'm also a qualitative researcher, which means I really focus on gathering people's stories and doing ethnographic work that paints a picture of how people experience their lives and the meanings that they attach to things and really digging into the meaning-making part of the process, which I think is messy and often not quantifiable. And I started to feel like my while my social science training was helpful and had given me a lot of frameworks and parameters for thinking about how to conduct research, and I was able to utilize that to give me you know, good scaffolding to execute the work, I had to sort of abandon this idea that I could in any way or should in any way present myself as neutral. And to me, being able to position a closeness to the work Mm -hmm. as an asset is key. I think so many people think Mm -hmm. that if something is somehow a topic we're emotionally invested in, that that somehow makes the work worse or less rigorous. When in my case, I felt like I would have more imagination around understanding these meaning-making processes that my participants were talking to me about than somebody who hadn't been in their position. So I felt that this was an asset rather than a liability. And that's why I've decided to just go full you know, full force into let's bring in the memoir piece. Let's talk about it. Let's let's just go ahead and be transparent and let's connect. Let's use this research on care as an opportunity to provide care, both for myself and for readers, and to move beyond the sort of scholarly journal article that 50 people might read and instead go a little bit bigger, right? Which is where the book sort of comes in. Mm-hmm. I mean, you that's amazing. You consciously made this step to allow yourself to be more human in this. Did it, you mentioned a moment ago that it, it freed you up to be more creative. Do, do you have, does something come to mind about how you did the research or what you did or, or that allowed something to happen that made the research richer as a result of that? Absolutely. I think the what it allowed me to do is write in such a way that I could both paint a picture of what happened to me, but also paint a much more devastatingly close picture of what was happening to the people whose stories I was gathering. And for me, it is crucial for us to talk about 
these things that go on behind closed doors. So the creativity lets me get at the things that we usually keep secret. And to me, I, I think overall disability is often a secret that people keep. It's something that we're ashamed of. It's something we don't want to, it's a topic we don't want to broach with other people. It's, and I think the same thing goes for care. Um, I think because caregiving is so deeply associated with what we think of as vulnerability or the sort of, I've talked about it elsewhere, sort of the calamity of our bodies. Like our bodies are just these things that are inherently unreliable. But we have, a, I think, both on the individual level and on the broader social level, a profound need to avoid talking about that at all costs. And we don't want to be reminded of it. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. And I feel like embracing the full creative part of the work meant that I could use this research that was you know, conducted in this using the scaffolding of social science tools, but then taking it and turning the material out of that, I, I have a hard time calling it data. Right. Like the the people's stories that I have, I have a really hard, hard time talking about that as data. It's the material that I'm using to craft a story and to craft a space, to create a space for people to talk about things that they're often deeply uncomfortable with talking about. So I'm going to, in a few minutes, I will ask you to, to share some of the stories. But before that, I, I, I want to pick up on this issue you just raised, because it was, of all the things I've heard you talk about as I've listened to you online, this was the one that really just blew me away. I'm not even sure what word to use. This issue of being ashamed of a secret of vulnerability. I have to tell you, the experience I had of listening to you talk about it I mean, I felt liberated. I don't, I'm trying mm. to find another way to, to say it, but it literally felt liberating because you're absolutely right. I mean, I practiced medicine for, for, I guess, over 20 years. I've been in healthcare for well over 30 years. I think I've carried a sense of what you talked about, of uh, shame, vulnerability, uh, dread, fear of being disabled, of, of being mm -hmm. infirm. You know, particularly, you know, being a physician that, that you know, we, there's this culture of invulnerability, right? Uh, the white coat. I mean, you look at the doctors that are on the, you know, on the pictures in advertisements and, you know, they're tall and beautiful looking and, you know, their hair is perfect and, and they're strong and, you know, it's, it's, or, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're, it's that sense of not being vulnerable. And I, when you talked about it and you talked about hacking ableist world, which I, I'd I'm, I'm going to ask you to speak to this right now. You, you talked about that. You talked about the antibody politic. You, you talked about our, our societal indoctrination into this sort of strong individualism, this, this autonomy. And you talked about that other side of it, the shadow side of it, as it pertains to, you know, disability infirmity. And, you know, again, I helped take care of a, of an infirm disabled grandmother for many years. And I think, and there've been other family members, of course, patients and I just think I've carried this fear and shame with me for years. I think it's ubiquitous in our culture. And when you talked about it, and I've never, I mean, I've read for decades now literature on caregivers and caregiving, and I've been following this literature. I've never, ever heard anyone talk about this before in the way you did and open it up in the way you did. And again, it was like, almost like I could breathe. And I, mm. I you know, it that's that feeling I had when I heard you talk it was so gripping and it was one of the reasons I really wanted to have the opportunity to speak with you today and share that. And so I'm wondering if you could, again, you're, you're a sociologist, you, you have this, you explained your background and your training and, and your research and your study and the sense of freeing yourself up. You not only studied this issue, you actually brought the issue of social commentary into it, which to mm -hmm. me is phenomenal. And you, connected that to caregivers and disability. I'm wondering if you could share with us what this all means, you know, with the folks that are listening, this this ableist world. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you did a nice job actually of sort of pulling in some key points around what ableism looks like if we devalue disabled people, disabled bodies, people who we view as quote unquote unproductive, 
I think if we take that and put it on this grand scale, it looks like only valuing independence, only valuing people who can ostensibly provide for themselves and others. And and those are people that we don't associate with needing care, that somehow they're these superhumans that are exempt from this need of care. And that's what we valorize. We valorize that. And in fact, you talking about caring for patients and sort of this ideology that you didn't even know you were carrying around with you. I mean, it makes perfect sense because doctors are the people that we sort of assign the role of make it stop. If there's something happening that's going to require me to need care, I'm going to go to the doctor and make that stop. That process, that totally human process, we will all become disabled and we'll all die. And that process cannot be avoided. But we I think, think about doctors as the people sort of standing between us and that, right? It's why there's this, those feelings that you talk about and not, and this discomfort and not wanting to have to either own up to the fact that that's going to happen. And it's also why doctors often can't talk about death, for example. When it was pretty clear to me, the trajectory that Jay was on, I was very invested in having a meeting and talking about palliative care, talking about hospice, being really, you know, there's this difficult thing. Let's just face it head on. Let's just talk about it. And I literally convened this meeting of her transplant doctor and some other people on the team. And there was just silence at the table. Nobody could actually talk about it. And it ended up everyone sort of talking around it and nothing came of it. And I walked out going, what just happened? So people couldn't even broach the subject. And I'm not blaming individual people. I'm saying this, this sort of ableism has permeated our culture. It is so deeply entrenched that we don't know how to have conversations about it. We don't have policies that address this totally expected and typical part of life that we will need care, we don't plan for those things. And so I think what's happening then is that that ableism is so entrenched that we've sort of backed ourselves into this corner and yet we're all so uncomfortable with it that we still can't talk about it. And I think that's part of my intervention, like you mentioned, is that maybe other people aren't talking about that, is it's going to be okay that we we can talk about it. We can face it head on. Let's come together in some honesty here. And I think that that's really hard for a lot of people to do. But again, I feel like my own transparency and honesty is meant to be an act of care in letting people do that. I'm going to do it. And now it's your turn kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Let's connect that dot to if you had an audience, and I hope you you do uh, federal uh, policymakers and for state policymakers, uh, you know CMS, uh, HHS. What would if you had a, le- a bunch of these leaders uh, who are making these, you know, payment reform policy? Is there is, what would you what would you share with them? What would you say in terms of this you know hacking this ableist world that we live in and you know coming to grips and actually doing something about it? What what is there to do here? Well, you know, like with anything, it comes down to funding, right, and policies. And I think one of the most important policies that needs to be addressed has to do with what's called the institutional bias in Medicaid. So there's two issues. One is that the only way to access home care in the United States is through Medicaid, unless you are paying privately right, out of pocket for home health aides, or you've bought a private health insurance plan, which the last I checked, I think it's only something like 7% of people have have purchased that that sort of private option has not really worked. Okay, so that's one problem, right, is that the only way you can even access this home care is through Medicaid, which is notoriously difficult to qualify for because of extreme income caps associated with it. And then this is, of course, a partner state and federal program. So every state gets to run it differently. So New York State is actually a really great place to be because we have 
something called CDPAP, the Consumer Directed Personal Attendant Program. Um, so that's something where Medicaid recipients can say, I would like to participate in this personal attendant program, and I would like to hire the people that I want to hire to come in and take care of me if I need it. And that person can also be a family member, I believe. I believe there's some allowances for that. So I think the big issue is, one, we don't have enough of a program that covers everyone, right? We don't have a universal home care program. We only have a needs-based or means-tested home care program that is notoriously hard to get. And there is something called the institutional bias in those policies where Medicaid is required to pay for nursing home care, but it is optional and up to each individual state to decide whether they will pay for home care, even though home care is wildly less expensive than nursing home care. And so I think the institutional bias, you know, that policy that requires paying for institutions but doesn't require paying for home care, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction in terms of addressing, you know, some of these care needs at home. And more than 90% of folks want to age in place. Right. Meaning they want to become disabled in their own home and require and use home health aids in a way that where they're directing this, right? And so that's independence. Independence isn't, you know, doing everything by yourself. This is some disability community wisdom. Independence isn't doing everything by yourself. Independence is controlling how things get done, right? So I think that that's one of the biggest issues is expanding Medicaid. I would love to see it be Medicaid and Medicare just be universal. And I would love to see that institutional bias. So this is really astounding. You're you're right. Over 90% of folks want to maintain that independence. I've seen those numbers. And, and the problem is that over 90% can't avail themselves of, of private caregiving. So it's, it seems to me the vast, vast majority are not getting the caregiving they need at home and are not able to attain that independence that most want. That's right. Yeah. That's where family caregivers step in, right? Mm -hmm. And quick preview of the book. I outline a whole history of how we got to there, mm -hmm. <laughs> how we got to these sort of policy uh, wow. situations that we've gotten ourselves in. Yeah. And then I set it up for this is how we get to the situation where a family caregiver has to step in mm -hmm. and basically take on the weight of an entire system's worth of failure. Wow. And that's what a family caregiver such as myself and 53 million other people are doing every single day. And they are, not only are they not paid for it, they lose wages. They lose, it's compounding because if you're losing wages, then you're losing retirement. You're losing savings. You're lo So there's an accumulated loss that isn't just in the immediate, but also for their the rest of their future. It sounds personally devastating for caregivers uh, on, on so many levels, including financial. I recall, and I don't know this number, I can't name the number, but the tens of billions, if not of dollars of lost earnings or what it would cost, you know, do, do, is that a number you have off yes. the top? Yeah. What is I, that? I think, yes, it was tens of billions. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the exact number off the top yeah. of my head either, but yeah. yes, the, it was a B, like there was, yeah. it was billions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, it, I mean, I think that part of it too, those multiple levels of hardship. And it's interesting. I never thought of the fact that, you know, whatever period of time the caregiving lasts, the impact it has on the caregiver lasts far longer than that and potentially for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. I, I'm living with the financial part of that where I was unable to work a lot of the time because my partner couldn't be left alone. How do you walk out your door to go earn money when they cannot be left alone? That's an impossible choice that so many people are trapped in. And then, of course, I live with complex PTSD. It's mm. something I still struggle with. And, you know, it's been almost 13 years since she died. So, yeah, there are financial devastations, emotional devastations, psychological devastations. Mm. Not having 
good disability policy is itself disabling because it's disabling other people in the wake of this, right? As we refuse to provide care for disabled folks, and then we put that care on the people around them, we then possibly are disabling those people in the process. Right. No, it's it's a it's a family and communal impact. You know, and again, as as you're saying this and teaching us this, it's informing us of this, that number of 53 million Americans. This is, I mean, there are 30 million Americans with diabetes in our country. This is almost twice that number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the devastation is in many ways so much greater. So, so turning to a different audience, if you had an audience of CEOs and chief medical officers and, and, and folks who are leading insurance companies and, and hospital systems and, and device manufacturers and, and pharmaceutical companies, what would you say to those that level of leadership in terms of what's needed in this regard? I would say you have to recognize that these medical interventions, whether it's a technology, a drug, a particular treatment, they don't fix things. They generate more labor, more ongoing care labor. So in other words, we have to think about these things as labor generators that we can't just then leave for family caregivers to pick up, right? And not recognize that as labor. That's one thing. The other thing is, I think this is likely that, so I'm going to speak now to relationships between family caregivers and physicians, and even insurance companies might be interested in this. When we think about the data on, for example, people with cancer who have wives have better outcomes. People with a partner or a spouse have better outcomes in their health. This is why long-term care insurance, when your premium will be lower if you're married. What I'm saying is there's a whole legion of people who are doing a job that is being generated by our healthcare system, but not being paid for by that system. At the same time, that labor is directly benefiting that system because we're improving outcomes or we're extending lives and we're maintaining people people's lives to the point where we have, and this is where it gets a little bit difficult because if you're in a capitalist country where markets are expected to sort of address these kinds of issues, what we've so far done is exploit family caregivers while building markets I'm talking about nursing homes and other sort of markets around long-term care. We've built those markets to serve folks who need care, right? Or to, some people might say, there's a new, uh, I'm trying to think of the title of this book now. Um, Oh, Health Communism. This is a a book uh, that talks about this all in terms of how capitalist markets are sort of churning all of this out and then families have to sort of pick up the labor that they generate. Mm -hmm. At the same time, these institutions like nursing homes and such are profiting off of that, the care that people need. Yeah. Let let me explore that a little bit. And I I know we're almost at time. Do you have a few extra minutes? Oh, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. How, when you said before, you know, how the healthcare system is putting out devices and techniques and tools and medications and whatnot. And that is creating the need for labor, which these non-paid, non-professional family, often caregivers are giving. Do you have an example of that? And then the second question sure. is, how are the, whether it's nursing homes or hospital systems or or pharma or insurance company, how are they profiting from this? Right. Well, I mean, here's one, here's a story I can, I can tell you. So, For example, when Jay was at a certain point in her disease, she needed physical therapy every every day. She needed multiple infusions at home. She needed upwards of two dozen medications. And she needed help toileting, bathing, dressing, all of your sort of activities of daily living, right? Now, what had happened after her treatment is that she needed 
all of these things, infusions, supportive therapies, medications to keep her alive every day. So there was this miraculous cure because she actually never had cancer again after the bone marrow transplant, but it left her severely impaired and in need of all of these sort of maintenance interventions. And I performed those every day. So that's in one sense, how this, you have this, you know, multi-million dollar process of a bone marrow transplant. And the idea is that you're going to cure someone. And when we think of someone as cured, we think of them as well. What I'm saying is that the fallout of those kinds of interventions is often not this notion of well that you might imagine, but in fact is a highly precarious, highly managed state that then has to be attended to, to the minutia, right, of every everyday activities for the rest of their life. So that's one example. Another example I can give you is one of the people that I spoke with. She lived in Wisconsin. Her husband had various conditions and also was an amputee. His leg was amputated and she was running. She had to do, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks where they sent a nurse in to do wound care. And then after that, they were like, you have to do it yourself. So she was doing wound care. She was running, plying and running lymphedema pumps to make sure that the site and the remaining limb had good circulation. So she was doing all of this care and nobody, there was no anything. There was, it was just good luck. You have to do this now. So there's people doing that all day, every day, whether it's feeding tubes, catheters. I had so many people I talked to who were changing catheters because a nurse wasn't available or, you know, they were doing feeding tubes because there's no, there's no other person to do it. And so they're doing it. And so that's how these kinds of interventions or treatments create bodies that then need to be sustained vis-a-vis technology, medical technologies, and over time that doesn't just go away. It's continuous. And that the family caregivers are the people who step in and are actually doing that work because we don't have anything that resembles, you know, a home care structure, infrastructure. Yeah. And again, over 53 million and that number is growing and accelerating in growth. Wow. It's a double, triple, I mean, it's a double, triple whammy is what I'm thinking to myself. It's unpaid healthcare delivery. I mean, that's what it is. Yes. Truly healthcare delivery and nursing uh, tasks, yes, like nursing all kinds tasks. of nursing I, tasks are I, being done. Mm-hmm. I was just literally thinking that I was, I was thinking I would have to be trained, even though I practiced medicine for over 20 years, I would have to be trained in what, in, in the, the things you were talking about. So it is, it is that nursing level. It's unpaid on top of that. You're losing the, the you know, you're not able to have to create the, the, the salary that you would have created because had you been able to work and then all the, you know, sort of emotional and, and physical trauma that comes as a result of that as well. And and as we just talked about the last three years, and as a result of that, you're talking about the, and on the, on the other side, the, obviously the device manufacturers, insurance companies, hospitals, SNFs, they're, they're nursing homes, they're, they're all continuing to generate revenue, but you, you said that they're profiting. And I guess I just want to be clear, you know, about this. How is it that they're actually profiting? I see how they're saving money because they're not, you know, and the government's saving money because it's not paying for this and neither is the the actual healthcare industry but are they profiting as uh, is it more just saving saving the, the the expense of it oh i think they're absolutely saving the expense of it but i i have to believe that some of the reasons why our healthcare is structured in the way that it is is because we've made a choice around how to regulate this who the cost should fall on and who pays for those things. So if you have insurance companies that are paying for these devices, but they're not paying for the labor that then those devices engender, you know, yes, I think they're saving that money, but people who are caregivers are keeping that person alive who then continues to need those things. Right. So, we're maintaining people's lives 
by maintaining their bodies and their bodies are the ones that are in, I don't, you could use the word dependent, but in collaboration with these devices and medications and whatnot. And they just keep earning money off of those things while people are performing all of this unpaid care. I am wondering, I know we're over time and if we, and, and if we can't okay. do this, we'll be, I'm just wondering if you could share a, a story of a, maybe a different type of caregiver than the one you were, maybe someone older or some, some different type of story that gives us another sense, mm -hmm. another view. Yeah. Well, let's see. I have so many. <laughs> how, how many, how many, you went into homes, you, you. Yes. Okay. With people. How this many? is a good, yeah, yeah, this is a good way to enter that. So I ended up interviewing 44 spousal caregivers across 22 states. And then when it came time, because it was 2020 when I was doing these interviews, when it came time in 2021 and people felt more comfortable and vaccines were out, I was able to visit some of those folks. And I basically made decisions about who to visit based on geography, based on for example, if somebody's spouse had dementia, they could not consent to me coming, right? So I wanted to be sure that people could consent to my being there. And, you know, both people, both the caregiver and their disabled spouse. I, you know, I wanted this to be consented to on by all parties and, and had to do that. So I ended up spending time with five people, some of them, you know, involved flying there and sleeping on an air mattress, you know, in there in an extra room, <laughs> you know, and staying overnight so that I could really get a sense. One person I visited, it just so happened that they had a home health aide, but she didn't show up that day. And so I ended up helping in some ways and I couldn't do it nearly as well as her husband could. And that was really so yes, five people I sort of spent time with uh, physically in their homes and 44, I talked to everybody at least twice and several of them more times than that for long interviews. So I have stories ranging from, you know, again, caring for folks with dementia to multiple sclerosis to, you know, heart disease and diabetes to multiple system atrophy, so many different types of diagnoses, which I thought was really important actually to have different types of diagnoses represented so that we could see the patterns that united across these things, right? And so one woman I can tell you about, she, her and her husband are older, late 60s, and the wife had been caring for her husband for 15 years. He was an amputee. He had multiple things going on. He had had a stroke. He had heart disease. There was lots of stuff, which often happens, as right. you know, right? right? Is that these things often co-occur. So things aren't just siloed. It's like, oh, I have this one thing without any other. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to throw a, a, a number in there, I would say a good... 5%, one out of every 20 people over 65 fall into the category you just define multiple complex chronic medical conditions. Yeah. So, so I saw this a lot where I was like, okay, and they've got what and what and what, you know, so we were dealing with big complex issues. Anyway, she was his caregiver, but as we often see, and we haven't talked about yet, not only are there financial devastations and emotional and psychological devastations, but- there is also no time for the caregiver to get care themselves. And so they often end up putting off care or the stress worsening their own, their own health. I think it's something like a third of all caregivers are also disabled in some way and have a, have a chronic condition. And so this woman had known at one point that she had had some heart trouble, but there was no time to go get this taken care of. And then she ended up having a major issue, needing a valve re replacement and going into cardiac rehab and calling me from cardiac rehab, sobbing 
because nobody could help her husband. She didn't know if he was eating. She didn't know if his laundry was getting done and she couldn't bend over and tie her own shoe anymore. And how she literally said to me, caregiving by myself all these years is killing me because she was, you know, transferring him, feeding, you know, doing all his meals, all of his laundry, doing all the the things that people need help with, but also at the same time, neglecting her own care. And that just broke my heart when she called me from cardiac rehab to, to, to give me this update. Another woman that I spoke with, her husband had a very rare skin disease where it basically, when he got he would have wounds, you know, chronically, he would have wounds that just wouldn't heal. And where it's a very rare diagnosis and his wounds would often be so deep that it would be down to the tendons and the bones. And she talked to me about the trauma of doing the wound care for him over a period of years where she kept having to look at this and do this and do this over and over again. And she said, I'm talking to you from a table that is piled high with insurance paperwork, denials, you know, paying for things. And she said, I'm also a cancer survivor and I'm trying to maintain my own health. And she told me this story that has really stuck with me where her husband was in the hospital and she got on the elevator to go up like three floors to where he was and she fell asleep standing up. And when she told me that, I just, I resonated with that so hard, that exhaustion, that there's just no end to it and it's terrifying. And that really, really struck me. I I still, I carry that with me a lot. I think about her a lot. These are, I mean, what you observed and what you're sharing, it's heartbreaking and and again, the number, as I'm hearing your stories, I'm thinking 53 million mm-hmm. Americans are family caregivers, 53 million, you know, it is heartbreaking. I mean, I think for me right now, it, it completely, I'm going back to what you said before in terms of what we need in terms of policy and payment reform, how large and urgent and just significant is this issue from a policy perspective? I mean, is there some action? Is there a congressperson that's addressing this? Is there a, I mean, do we have any motion, positive movement in this direction? You know, there was some hope at the beginning of the Biden administration with the Build Back Better bill, Mm -hmm. which had included a lot more funding for home and community-based services, which is what we're talking about right through Medicaid. The home care is falls under what they call long-term services and supports, LTSS or home and community-based services, HCBS. Those things were originally built into the Build Back Better bill, but they were cut. And we can blame Joe Manchin. I can tell you that. But anyway, I don't want to get off on my like political issue with Joe Manchin. But We should note that West Virginia also has the highest disability rates in the country. Um, So that was something that could have made a major impact. And I was talking to another advocate, Matthew Cortland, and they said they feared that missing that moment might not be repairable, that we don't know when the next time is going to be where there's going to be, you know, the political stars aligning such that we can expand mm-hmm. because this is about the expansion mm-hmm. of services. Mm-hmm. And this goes right back to ableism. We have right. such an entrenched mm-hmm. view that people who need care are somehow, you know, liars, tricksters, cheats, just being dependent and not productive, quote unquote, that we have such a hostility towards that, that it's nearly impossible to think about a political climate where we might be able to provide the care that people need mm-hmm. without it being shadowed by, you know, overshadowed by this sort of disdain for needing care. And that's such a major problem. Yeah. 
I, I'm wondering as you're speaking, and I think you've addressed this in some of your talks and writings, I wonder if some of this reluctance or lack of movement has to do with the, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but the fact that women make up the majority of mm -hmm. caregivers. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I just wonder if there's... Absolutely, because we have an expectation that that's who's going to take care of things. Mm. It all works together because you can't have a total absence, like abdication of people who need care by the government. You can't have this total abdication without complementary messages of who is should do it. And so when you have the complementary message of like, oh, women do that. That's what a wife does. That's what right. the eldest daughter does, right? That's yeah. we have to have these complementary messages so that people are willing to take up the weight of the need. Yes. And absolve the states. What I've often said and I'm writing about is how through marriage and vows of in sickness and in health, we actually absolve the state. Mm -hmm. And so that's another piece of things, particularly for spousal caregivers. I, I think your word abdication is where the state and the government abdicates responsibility for this. It's you're so spot on. I, I think, you know, I had that thought going through my mind. It's like that question even of, you know, it is this sort of indoctrination of this is what you signed up for. This is the job you're, you know. That's right. And it's, God, it's, it's, it's insidious and, and it's wrong on so many levels, but I could see, I suspect if the majority of caregivers were men and white men, we, there would be more done. That's just, I'm just yeah. going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to say, I could listen to you and have so many more questions and want to hear more about this. I'm going to kind of wrap us up here because uh, I know we've been going on and maybe I'd love to actually, quite honestly, I'd love to have the opportunity to have a sort of a, a follow-up conversation with you, whether we post it public just for myself. And I just, there's so many more questions I have, and, and I'd like to hear more from you. What's your book? Yeah. Why don't we could have another, another yeah. episode after the book comes out. Ben, let's do that. <laughs> Any final thoughts before I? Sure. I mean, I'll just say that all of this will be in the book. The book will be out in the target date is February 2025. So I'm not done writing it yet. And so that's when it will be out. And it'll be published by Echo, which is part an imprint of HarperCollins. And there will be a full court press, you know, in terms of publicity and all of that. So I hope that, you know, the last thing I'll, I'll say is let's keep talking about it. Let's keep talking about these things that people don't want to talk about. And perhaps we can start to make a dent in this, like you said, insidious belief system that has let this go on for so long. Perhaps the more we talk about it, the greater a chance we have at, at getting it changed. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Friends, colleagues, I'm going to bring this podcast to a close and I don't want to, but I think we have to sooner or later. I just want to thank our amazing, our brilliant guest today, Professor Laura Malden. Thank you so much. I don't usually do this. I, I just want to take a moment just to say, to share some thoughts about Professor Malden. I just think her perspective is so unique and, and so gripping. And as I mentioned before, it's actually liberating. It, it, it speaks to, as we were just talking about, this fact that we all live with these indoctrinating, you know, insidious frameworks, these paradigms that are not helpful and not healthful. And you know, we don't recognize them. It's It really takes a courageous scholar, I'm going to say a warrior scholar like Laura Malden to actually point it out so that we actually have a choice. Without awareness, we have no choice. And I think that's what's so liberating and exciting and hopeful and encouraging about this conversation and, and the work that Professor Malden is doing. We don't have to be trapped within the ways we've been thinking about things and feeling things and, and acting around things. We can really frame the story in a different way. Laura is an incredibly divergent thought leader and scholar. I think as we've heard, listening to her quite honestly reminds me that we need in healthcare to bring in these divergent perspectives into the healthcare dialogue, into healthcare reform. It will not be solved only by the traditional expertise that we have. We need different ways of understanding and talking about the challenges in healthcare. And otherwise, we're going to be trapped inside of these constraining conceptual walls of our past thinking. You know, and, and just to your last point, 
people sometimes poo poo this notion of dialogue and talk, you know, how is that going to really change anything? Why don't you go ahead and do something? Well, let me just say to myself and to anyone else who has that in their head right now, there has never been a transformational event in human history that didn't begin with not just one, but numerous dialogues that required a different way of talking about things. I mean, I think about the founding of this amazing country we live in. It was a bunch of people sitting around and talking to each other for years and talking about things in a radically different way that allowed us to form this democracy. I think it's absolutely brilliant the way you've done this and, and reframed caregiving and caregivers for us and disability. I will never ever think about these issues the same way. I will never feel about these issues the same way. And I just have to say, Laurie, you're the type of beyond the walls leader that I wrote about in my second book. And I, I wish I could have written about you, but I'll, I'll give a little bit. I'm already beginning to conceptualize book number three, and it will be about leaders like you. And, and I'm hoping actually to have you in that book. So again, oh, I, would, I would really enjoy that. Yeah, no, I I'm I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but having just finished writing the book not too long ago. But again, seriously, thank you. And I'm I mean everything I say and said about you and what you're doing and the impact you're having on me and, and hopefully on others. So I'm gonna end this. I don't wanna stop talking to you, Laura. I don't wanna stop listening to you, but as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by by turning to you folks out there and thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. And, and I'm going to say now I have to actually include, and I will include from now on in this final concluding statement, non-professional caregivers at home who are part of that workforce. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and really our society as a whole. Uh, my friends, like I said at the beginning, if you're not moved by this dialogue, I really have missed the mark here. This is Zeb Newirth on Creating New Healthcare. Until next time, be well. <laughs>